that we're taping the show on October 3rd, 2013. Um, Ken, you are in town to do as part of the Zell Visiting Writers Series, and you're going to, by the time people get to hear this, you will have read. <laughs> um, but we'll they'll get to hear a few of your poems and some new work, yeah, poems yeah. from Juvenalia. We've got this um, from Yale University Press, um, 2010. Um, you were the prize winner in 2010. For yeah, the- yeah. It's the it's the biggest prize in poetry. And when I got it, I, it made me realize how, how small poetry was because it would be like being the Candyland champion of America or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but there's a lot of Candyland players. If we were to extend the metaphor, yeah. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, this is a big game of Candyland, and so this is a, like, it's a big deal. Thank you, thank you. And, and, um, and were, well, were you surprised, like, were you shocked, or were you thinking, uh? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it, it changed my life. It's a life-changing thing to have had happened to one, and, uh, I... I had applied the year before, and um, I got a small letter written on almost like a scrap of notepad, typewritten by Louise Glick, saying that I was a finalist and would I like to meet her in Boston. And then we had this kind of surreal meeting, and in the intervening year, I, I rewrote the whole book, and um, and then I, I won. But it was funny because I got the call in the middle of writing like a very intense grant for my organization, the Asian American Writers Workshop. And I was busy calling a lot of, uh, you know, like community groups, trying to get them to partner and they weren't calling me back. And then I got this unrecognized phone number and I was like, what? And then it was Louis Glick being like, so you won the Yale. Um, wow. And I, I, the title Juvenalia actually comes from, it, it, as, as you know, in the world of poetry, it's basically like a racket where you just have to submit things to contests, you know, hope it works out. It's the opposite of socialism. Everyone pulls their money and gives it to one person. And uh, I entered a million contests. Sometimes I'd be a finalist, but generally it didn't work out. And so I was sort of like, screw this. Like, this is Juvenalia from this time forward. And then, and then the, name, the name stuck. And then when I met with Louise, she was like, you know, but you definitely have to ditch the name. But then it ended up that the name really captured something about the work and that it was at once sort of ironic as a title, but it was also uh, actually what the book was about in terms of th- stories about um, how, you, not, not just stories about love and romance and family and childhood, but stories that are sort of about uh, poems or stories 
that are about how how does one become a person? Like what what is a person? Um, how how do you collect things together until it forms something that looks like a person? And that's I mean that's no small thing, which is why it's it's a boundless book, and that might be the irony Thank you. Thank of you. the yeah of the title. And I love how you said you resisted. You're like no, it is going to be called this, even though Louise Glick had said, think about it, Ken. Right. Well, I, I, I came up with a bunch of like alternate titles that were awful, and um, Juvenalia was a joke, but then it ended up being a more accurate joke. And so, with because I would have thought titles were your wheelhouse. Why is that? Well, because I just really like the one, like the like because you're always with with poems and with Juvenalia. You know, there's there's chances for titles almost if not on every page, every couple of pages, yeah. right? And so it seems like you've got like the mansions of the moon. Like if I just love is like tautology in the same way, like is like tautology. Like if I, if, a lot of them are weird read, titles. But, uh, and that I love. Why? So why are they weird titles, Ken? For example, there's this uh, title of a poem that I might read later in this hour that um, it starts like yes, no, yes. And those are all answers to questions that are asked in the poem. Um, and I guess for me, uh, how, how do you make decisions in life? You know, and how, how do you make decisions in... I, 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 buy my new self-help video. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, in, in, in poetry, like how would you make a decision about something? You know, in a title, I guess my thought was like, can a title be uh, something that's more functional? Like something that relates to the machine of the poem you know, like it's an answer to a question or it's a, um, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it extends, like this poem, the title is like in the middle of the poem. Um, so, but I think for a book, it's a little bit different because it's not a whole work. So, um, I don't know. I think, I think titles Wait, what are, do you mean are, it's not a whole work? Because I guess, now, I guess isn't it is it, a whole work. Because now isn't it sort of an artifact? It's a thing itself somehow. I, I guess I mean like a lot of these poems, uh, they they were usually the result of like me thinking about something and then trying to find the right uh, mold that would capture the thinking. So each poem has a different mm -hmm. form. You know, some one is like a quiz, one is like an algebra word problem, one uh, steals things from Wikipedia, um, one is uh, a blues song. You know, one is like a shooting script for a film. So th it's not. Uh, playful in a kind of cynical sense. Like uh, we have to get all these gimmicks so we have special effects um but it was more like what was more most accurate way of uh, describing the uh sensation of consciousness that i was having when i was experiencing this um mm -hmm. so in a way a lot of the they, they have different forms but they're almost always reciting the same uh internal dialogue that you have when you're you know n neurotically obsessing over you know a personal problem huh i love the sound of that Maybe because I understand it. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound like something we want to always have happening, but it could be. You know what? It occurs to me, Ken. I've, I love talking with you. So this, I should, before we go any further, though, I want to read your short bio that's, um, that's, that's out of Juvenalia, or maybe actually slightly more recent. Ken Chen is the executive director of the Asian American Writers Workshop. His first poetry collection, Juvenalia, won the 2010 Yale Younger. Other work has been published or recognized in Best American Essays 2006, Best American Essays 2007, and the Boston Review of Books. A graduate of Yale Law School, he lives in Brooklyn, New York. And 
Ken is a very busy man. (laughs) (laughs) Sleep deprived. And sleep deprived and caffeinated, right? (laughs) This is perfect. It's like the perfect confluence for a living writer's uh, show, I think. And you are not alone, Ken. Not well, I, I apologize for being. Oh, don't be, don't be silly. Bur- burnt out husk of a man. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Before me sits a vibrant soul, Ken Chen. Um, Ken, you're. Um, it's. I think there. Even if you were just a husk, you, which you would never be, your husk would be loom large. Um, <laughs> like, like, like Vladimir a, Putin. <laughs> like a magnified hermit crab. <laughs> <laughs> we we were talking earlier about hermit crabs. Right. And uh, my, your pets. I, I, I'd said that uh, when I was a kid, I really wanted a dog, and um, my parents instead got me two hermit crabs, which, which promptly died. But th- you couldn't tell if they had died or not because they were that's quiet? what hermit crabs are like. Because <laughs> no. you had said you had named them easy and lazy. Yes, yes. One of them was very lazy. I'll, you can guess which one. That one was easy. <laughs> <laughs> and. Lazy might have even gone first, but who's to know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were kind of, they didn't have, they weren't very um, affectionate. Right, because would you just sort of have, like, visiting time with each of them? Like, take them out on <laughs> you your can't hand? Really, or... You can't really cuddle with hermit crabs. You could, well, you, you could, but... But it, it's like uh, cuddling with, like, magnified lice or something. It's like, just this crawly, weird, <laughs> cuddly thing. Anyways... I almost think you should get another hermit crab now. Just I to re- re-experience it. Well, to see, to see. Um, unless you know that you would be a hermit crab killer, which it sounds like you might be. <laughs> a friend of mine gave record. me. Uh, I I really love eating crab actually, and a friend of mine <laughs> gave me a pet crab, and and I jokingly called it dinner, and then I forgot for like Christmas or my birthday or something, and then I forgot the crab existed, and then I came back three days later and I was like, oh, whoops. And it was it was gone. It, well, it was like floating, like you know, disfigured. <laughs> okay, so no more. I take back no, my no more, I, no more no, suggestions. No more crustacean no more pets. Crust- and it crustacean was, pet prohibition. Yeah, for you. Yeah, for you. Yeah. yeah, maybe. But it sounds like you're you're ready to go go back in the. I don't know. I have a dog, so uh, I I have a dog, Ken. <laughs> I don't mean to rubbing brag. It in, rubbing <laughs> exactly, it in. Exactly. But you living in Brooklyn, that would be that would be harder and like a, have a, dog. a bigger. Although there's some. No, every, everyone has a dog. Uh, it, it it might not be obvious from the outside, but the streets of Brooklyn are actually paved with dog poop. It's like you you can't walk because there's sort of dog poop is laminating all surfaces. It's true. And it is, and it is the worst. It's the worst feeling, like when you're on your way somewhere, and then you have that that pep in your step, and then you suddenly have that slide in your step, and you're like, ooh, oh, the worst. You know, you know what it is. But but on to other things because I'm thinking this isn't (laughs) figuring into your new work. Actually, my my new work is a is a novel about dog poop. Um, It's very (laughs) philosophical and transgressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Relatable. Well, what you've also got coming up, um, we we talked briefly about was uh, off air was that you're you're directing a of writing a writers festival this week a literary festival um, this weekend too. And yeah. So uh, this, so this is as one of your hats as the executive director of the Asian American Writers Workshop. Is that? Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm the executive of the Asian American Writers Workshop. Um, we're a literary arts alternative arts space, a nonprofit that does events and publishes online magazines. And we've been around for more than 20 years. We threw uh, Jhumpa Lahiri's first book party when she was an emerging writer. Um, 
We have an initiative called Culture Strike, where we flew uh, 50 writers and artists to the Arizona border for a week-long uh, investigation of the border atrocities. People like Ted Cole, Maxine Hong Kingston, uh, Emery Douglas, the Black Panthers cultural uh, minister. Um, and we believe that Asian American stories deserve to be told. And furthermore, that Asian American identity is a countercultural alternative space, like the uh, a bohemian space as opposed to kind of like a Star Trek The Next Generation, you know, everyone's in the same big happy family, like United Colors uh, of Benetton uh, kind of way in that uh, in order, I guess our position is sort of like anti-imperialist. Uh, we, we do a lot of uh, events with radical intellectuals as well as with novelists and poets. And this Saturday, which will be a Saturday in the past, thanks to the time travel of radial archival projects, <laughs> we have Paige Turner, uh, the Asian American food and books festival um so we're gonna have a whole floor of food vendors dumpling makings but the whole th there's gonna be more than 80 writers um there uh including uh writers like david henry huang the winner of multiple tony awards um amantava kumar uh as well as writers who are not asian american like uh, mark nowak who's a guggenheim fellow who's written a lot of poems about mining um justin torres the author of we the people who's a, a you know a promising young novelist uh Stephen Elliott, the founder of The Rumpus. Um, but I, I think for me, I was thinking, how, wh why are literary festivals so boring? How can we make uh, a literary f space an activated space? So, for example... Food? Food? Well, food. <laughs> so there'll be food. There'll be uh, bubble tea, dumpling-making stations. There's even going to be a food art installation by this artist named Alison Kuo, where she's going to create this like science fair project slash like automated fortune teller that involves her giving you food. Uh, but there's also like a million other crazy things. Like, Food is fortune. I'm sorry it, it, to. It's stop. like. Do you, do you remember Big with Tom Hanks? The, yeah. Do, do, I never like saw it, but I know what you mean. Fortune teller in in, oh. in the front. But actually, the novelist Alexander Chi is going to be doing tarot card readings at, at our after party, um, <laughs> and we're going to have live screen printing. We're going to have a pop up poster gallery. Um, we're going to have a sound installation from uh, like experimental music inspired by Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, oh, wow. There's what else is there going to be? There's there's going to be butterfly making sessions. Uh, the, these butterfly wings have become symbols of the immigrants' rights movement. So these people can paint. You can paint your butterfly wings and take them away. There's going to be a guy dressed up as a giant dumpling. Uh, one of the writers from the X Men is going to come and talk about how to write a comic book. But on top of that, we have like uh, this is the like... best literary festival. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't. So if don't you're worry. listening, get in your time machine and go back in time to October fifth. But uh, it, it's the most ambitious thing the Asian American Writers Workshop has done, and there are all these crazy things. But also there are a lot of like serious, uh, you know, intellectual, political um, events like. Uh, Madiha Tahir, who's a young Pakistani journalist, she goes to parts of uh, Pakistan and Waziristan where the families have been attacked by drones and interviews them. Um, oh, there's this woman, Diana Matar, who's a photographer and artist, and her latest photo project is about um, her father-in-law, the father of uh, the novelist Hashem Matar, was disappeared by the uh, Qaddafi administration. Oh. So she has these like inst photo installations um, so um, will there be um, like will this be on your website yeah if you go to aaww.org and the festival site if you want to just look backwards in time yes, and see what you yeah. missed uh, it's pageturnerfest.org and will this be something that will be annual so maybe yeah, people yeah. will could look forward to putting it on their calendars 
for yeah, we've done it. October. We've done it a lot in the past. Um, past readers include Jhumpa Lahiri, Michael Antonche, Gino Diaz, uh, Teju Cole, um, uh, and Amitav Ghosh, uh, as well as a lot of like dancers and you know uh, emerging writers. Um, but it, so if you're in New York, you should only come to our events because they're all crazy like this. But if you're not in New York, if you go to aww.org, we have lots of articles and essays and cultural criticism. And, um, you know, I'd love for you to take a look at those. That would be great. Let's take a short break yes. and then we'll come back and we'll talk more. Today on the program, Ken Chen is here. Um, we've got his collection of poems, Juvenalia, on the table and new work as well. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on Living Writers, uh, Ken Chen is here. I'm T. Hetzel, and we've got Stephanie Douglas engineering behind the glass. Thanks, Stephanie, playing the songs Ken chose. Um, that's right. That, I'm that blaming last you, one Ken. was quite a corker. <laughs> it was a corker. <laughs> we can't hear them, so we're... we're... <laughs> St- Stephanie's not letting us I, hear that. I didn't know Frank Sinatra did hip hop. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, you know what I think is interesting, Ken? Is um, well, many things, but um, hearing you talk about the the festival of the Page Turner, um, I feel like not as surprised by like when you're tur- like when you're in your book, like the different types of voices and like as you were mentioning earlier in the show, like using different forms. Your vessels, you know, like it's because they're and all these things go together because mm-hmm. you're uniting them. Yeah, I think it's it's hard because uh, I think that when you're a young writer, you're always told to find your voice, you know. But I, I think when I was a young writer, I was like, do I do I have a self? Like, do I even have a personality? Like, what what would that mean to like be a person? You know, and so. Uh, then you get old and then, you know, you're like, oh, well, obviously I'm who I am, you know, and you've collected all these memories and experiences and lo and behold, you're suddenly a person, you know. Um, I, I remember my stepfather once said something like, um, he said, this is going to sound strange and I don't want you to take it the wrong way, but most of, like I was a teenager or something and he was like, most of your friends, you know, it's when I look at them, it's like looking at a glass of water because they haven't had enough life experience. So it's like they don't, they're transparent, but um, 
and there's one friend who had a really eccentric personality and he was like you know that friend it's like a glass of milk like there's some more uh texture there you know so i think um what's been a challenge for me is how do you synthesize once you have the stuff in the room how do you synthesize it and make it all work together whereas i think most people would maybe not i don't want to presume to talk for other people but i think a lot of times with writing it's often about this is who i am this is honing my voice this is my subject mm -hmm. manner mm -hmm. this is what i'll touch um but um, I have to say, like, I, I, I often enjoy this sort of, like, bang on the piano kind of, uh, you know, food processor, garbage dump version of uh, poetics, like, you know, incorporating it all. Is that why, because uh, that's reminding me about the the essay I think you wrote for the Poetry Society of America because mm -hmm. I did they ask you, like, what is it to be like writing American poetry? Yeah. Was that the yeah. question? Which is kind of a, that's a heavy question, yeah. and um, and you sort of introduced Walt Whitman into the conversation immediately in an imaginary context, and then there's even by the but towards the end of the essay, I think you you're introducing Blade Runner, and before that Robert Kennedy. It's like you've kind of are going everywhere with this. Um, yeah, I'm glad because you, I'm, it needs I'm glad, I'm to glad go you, everywhere. You, you've, you read that because I, I I put a lot of time into that, but I don't know if a lot of people have read it. But I the this essay. Uh, starts with me hanging out with <laughs> Walt Whitman, and we're at like uh, immigration prison, and there's a there's a corpse of a, a Chinese immigrant prisoner who's talking to us, and uh, it's a kind of performative essay. Each each paragraph is sort of like a different setup. Um, I don't know if you want it, Ken, there with you, but I mean, yeah, um, I mean, so I was asked along with like a billion other writers to write um, what what is American about American poetry, and I thought that it was such a bad and awful question, um, and I yeah, and I, I guess it's difficult I think because Ra Ravi Shankar had to answer it too. Yeah, yeah. I think. What, what did he say? Well, that you have to listen to the well, show. Okay. Ken. I, 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 a lot of a lot. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I'm being excessively thoughtful, but I, a lot of these, uh, a lot, a lot of the poets, they would write things like, um, they would answer it in a way that had no kind of historical context or situatedness. So, being American was Walt Whitman. Being American was Emily Dickinson. Being American was a bunch of proper nouns that happened to happen in America. And for me, I think. Uh, the idea was more about what, why do you have a relationship with a nation? And if you were to start dating a nation, would you want to go out with a nation as awesome and awful as America? Um, like there's a Chris Rock joke where he says something like, uh, for black people, obviously I'm not black, um, America is like the abusive uh, uncle who put you through college. And, you know, uh, th there's one piece in here where it says something like, uh, I used to pretend I was American. This is before I realized I was American. And I think being a child of immigrants, you know, you kind of grow up being like, you know, the, the Pilgrims, Civil War, uh, you know, the Mayflower, Founding Fathers, whatever, that's cool. Like, that has nothing to do with me, you know, like, whatever. But then um, you're at the same time trying to be like, well, I'm not a foreigner. I, I'm I'm from here. Uh, while being conscious that no one actually feels that way. I mean, that's why uh, the historian Peter Kwong has a book called uh, Chinese Americans, the oldest new community, because there's also this assumption that you're, you just immigrated here, even though 
you know, Asian Americans arrived in America like 50 years before the Jamestown settlements. Um, and, I think that's in here. Oh, uh, really? That's good. I'm consistent. Um, but I, I think the other thing is like if you decide to have an affinity with a place, um, would you want to be American? Um, I mean, I, I think there's one part where you're sort of like always uh, playing catch up and being like, why won't you accept me? as an American. And then there's another way of coming around in a more uh, entitled, assertive way and being like, well, if you would accept me as being American, is that something I would actually want? Like, uh, you know, uh, America is a country that, um, you know, intervened in, in like, everywhere. Uh, I mean, I, I don't need to go on that much further in this Jeremiah, but you know, I, I grew up watching a lot of Hong Kong uh, historical films where it, it's always set in like the early 20th century or the late uh, uh, 1800s, and um, you know, there's always like British men with enormous mustaches who are like, uh, pl- you know, selling opium and uh, closing down ports and being generally like dastardly people, you know. But it's it's yeah. I mean, actually, the project I'm working on now is sort of like, it's about the death of my father, but it's also uh, about colonialism and um, trying to find what's, how to talk about colonialism in a way that isn't so uh, about guilt and um, agitprop and like sloganeering. Um, And it's interesting reading the diaries of a lot of these uh, kind of colonial intellectuals in like Japan and uh, India and China and for them in the Ottoman Empire and for them it was really like the apocalypse was coming you know Um, I mean I think uh, you know hundreds of millions of people died from things like famines often caused by colonialism and uh, so I thought it was interesting to think about it a little bit like uh, a science fiction apocalypse you know like the world is literally ending Um, you know you know, eighty percent of the people you know die because the the in in a time in India where the the country is exporting food to Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, so why why is that? You know, there, or in this, Ireland, yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah, it's very similar yeah. actually. Um, and I mean, there's a part in this Mike Davis book uh, where he he called the late Victorian Holocaust, where he talks about like being in India and like uh, like news reports and like news report of like uh, people walked by carrying a pole. Uh, with a dead woman on it, and her face was eaten by a dog. Uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, terrifying, but it's sort of almost like so hallucinatorily uh, awful that it's like it's the, end, the it apocalypse is, or something yes, like that. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's so some of the stuff I'm writing is from sort of like like uh, apocalyptic fan fiction or something like and that. And that's the current. That's the, your work. Now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and dealing with your your dad's yeah 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 death and um because I feel like in uh, like that the poem my father and my mother decide my future and how could we forget one way that that poem can I feel like in that it's interesting because there's this the you've, your father has the most powerful hmm. part it seems like it, it well he's throughout it uh, obviously in the title as well but his he has the last words as well like hmm. like who are you it says and then and my father says decide do you, do you want me to read it maybe yeah let's take a short break okay. do you mind no. reading it it's okay we'll be right back you've got living writers today on the program ken chen is here i'm t hetzel we'll be right back
tip is my title I don't think that is vital For me to be your idol But dig this recital If you can't envision A brother who ain't dissing Slinging this and that Cause this and that was missing Instead it's been injected The tribe has been perfected Oh yes it's been selected The office is protected Afrocentric living Africans be giving A lot to the cause Cause the cause has been risen Some brothers they be flamming Thinking we ain't slamming Coming off like the days When we used to wear the Tanzan A blue collar talker Hemisphere stalker A glass of OJ And a 10 mile walker If you're in a deep And you dig what you're hearing Can I get a beep And a side order of cheering I am what I am That's a tribal man We all know the colors We all must stand As we start our travels Things they will unravel Que sera sera For this unit is like gravel Won't be gone for long Listen to the song If you can't pull it All you gotta do is Push it along Push it along Push it along Yeah push it along Push it along Push it along Push it along, yeah, push it along, push it along, push it along, push it along, yeah, push it along, push it along, push it along, push it along, yeah, push it along. Put one up for the Pfeiffer, it's time to decipher. Welcome back, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Ken Chen is here. We've got his book, Juvenalia, on the table, and um, and Stephanie gave us back the music. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, so Ken, right before break, um, we were talking about this poem. Would you you mind reading it? Yeah, so the title is what the poem is about. Um, My father and my mother decide my future, and how could we forget Wang Wei? And um, I wrote this poem after having a dream when I was in high school, or no, at the end of college. And like many people, um, and I'm sure like many people listening to this at the University of Michigan, I was sort of wondering what I should do with the rest of my life. And of course, you have no clue because you're this clueless, you know, 21-year-old or whatever. And I had this dream that my mother and my father were deciding my future and arguing my case was the 9th century classical Chinese poet Wang Wei, who um, was speaking poetic gibberish. and later, uh, I ended up translating some of his poems with my mother. And uh, Wang Wei's dialogue, um, that it, they're from, they're quotations from his poems that we translated. And he's like the third most famous Chinese poet. Um, and he usually gets translated like a nature poet. But there's something inhuman and strange about his poetry, almost more like Beckett or the the inhumanness of Emily Dickinson. And he kind of writes like a hippie. It's all about like hanging out in the outdoors, looking at the moon, you know, with your guitar. Uh, but he was also the vice premier of the Chinese government. So it's, it's this public-private kind of thing um, going on. So, okay. And he's he's on your side, definitively. Yeah, and he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't very successful because I ended up becoming a lawyer anyway, so, which is what my parents wanted. Um And then I quit and became the head of the Asian American Writers Workshop. But the title of this poem is My Father and My Mother Decide My Future And How Could We Forget Wang Wei The suitcase open on the bed My grandfather is packing up his organs When he is done, he takes a taxi to my grandmother's house for supper Exits the empty car to Taipei Alley Dissolve Nalva Las Altos lot. So, did you listen to him? My father says, taking his keys out of the ignition. You should become a lawyer, but your grandfather says, anything is fine, as long as you're the best. My father stays. My mother stays silent. I sit and suck my thumb. 
I saw your painting. It was beautiful, my mother says to Wang Wei, restrained beside me by backseat belt and streetlight world. Wang Wei who says, in the silent bamboo woods, sitting along, playing strings and bellowing long. But America is allergic to bamboo, my father says to Wang Wei. They love skill sets, cash, and the first person singular. The language of C++, not our English. Steps out, shuts the door, puts gas pump by Acura trunk. My father's son does not understand. Forgets the Chinese he never remembered. But my mother holds words in her mouth. The Peking opera soundtrack of my childhood. You sound like it. I'd listen to it on the radio, you know, when I had to sweep the floor. And then Wang Wei. Nobody knows but the deep grove and the luminous moon that glows in response. California moon not glow, or as the translation might say, irradiates instead like beige screen before my mother, now at HP after Taipei and degree in home ec and divorce. My mother like the moon, which rents light from its past. My mother who says, looking at the dashboard, you should listen to your father. I don't know. Here he comes. My father unlocks the door and says, drop the keys in the toilet. But that's what life is like. You're young, my father says. I'm not sure to me or Wang Wei. You don't understand the world. The world which loves those who enter it. And then Wang Wei. Red hearts in the southern country. Spring comes with stems enlarging. I didn't know you two were still together. We're not, my father says. He is unsentimental and gestures at the wish that furnishes the mind of his son. Your son, asks Wang Wei. He has seen me and become real, as though a ghost could die into a man. Not the monk you quite expect, Wang Wei wears a cowboy's deadened face and stares at you, not unlike an establishing shot. He says, who are you? Like the scene in the movie where the actors find the camera and say, stop looking at me. They quit the car and stand. And I say, wish you'd gathered some. Caught me more of this thing that is longing. And Wang Wei asks, who are you? And my father says, decide. Thank you, Ken. It's hard to... The world of the poem is so clear there. Well, the dream hmm. poem. It's hard to sometimes know what to say next. Well, Wang Wei was unsuccessful. I went to law school. <laughs> um, and... Uh, uh, I, I think classical Chinese poetry interested me because um, for different reasons than maybe it's been in introduced into the Western literary canon and that a lot of times it it's insane, crazy. Uh, there's this Chinese writer I like uh, named Liezi who's like a ancient like pre-medieval like billions of not really billions of, like like <laughs> 2000 years ago at least uh like Taoist guy and it's like uh if like Kafka was written by like the three stooges or something like uh like there's a guy who um 
has a dream. He he sees a deer, and then it's and then it, it's dead deer, and he's like, oh, I, I gotta save that um, for later, and then he hides it, and then someone else finds it and digs it up, and then the guy, the first guy, comes back and he's like, that that deer isn't there anymore. Maybe I dreamed it, and then he sees the other guy like eating the deer, <laughs> and then he's like, you stole that deer from my dream, and then he goes to the court. This is very, very Chinese. They, they go to the legal system and the, he's like, this guy stole a deer from my dream to the judge. And then the judge has to adjudicate it. And the, the book has all these sort of magical, uh, surreal moments. And this surrealism isn't an effect of alienation. It's something that's continuous with the world. And then, so that's why, you know, of course it would be, you could go into a dream and steal deer. And then you have to go to the legal system, you know? So you have things like manners and etiquette and stuff like that that's woven into it. Uh, that woven into this Looney Tunes kind of uh, world. And it makes sense in some way. Like this, because of course. It, and, <laughs> but stra- and strange that you would even trust the world to adjudicate it. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess that's, it, there's something cute about that. Like it's, it's a, we're, we're all good people. It's yeah. a rational world. Like I'm still you know. believe in the humanity. Or yeah, we're, I'm not going to shut down the government, you know. <laughs> oh man, yes. Um, <laughs> well, and will you, you did so you be became a lawyer and you're still and it seems like are you still practicing some pro bono because i feel like did you you had a case where you represented a high school student seeking asylum yeah um i i was a lawyer at a law firm in new york for about three or four years and um one case we had was this girl who uh was 17 years old and she was from guinea though she didn't know she was an immigrant she thought she came at a young age or was born here and um the police basically like kidnapped her and her father and deported her father and then accused her of being a suicide bomber which she wasn't she was a high school student and um so we had her asylum case but it had all this sort of post 9-11 civil liberty stuff around it um and then i'm not practicing law anymore but um it's it's weird how you can have multiple lives you know like one moment you're a lawyer the next minute you're not you know it's can really and is it the dream of being a lawyer <laughs> that that definitely is the dream of being a lawyer um yeah i i every time i meet a lawyer they go you escaped <laughs> seriously yeah yeah i know in some ways you you're like phew <laughs> well it's much more financially stable uh then and and i think law taught me a lot of things and that before i went to law school i like a lot of poets, I think I thought that the the private self, the cultivation of your tastes, your feelings, mm. this sensitive world of your interiority was the most important thing. And then I went to law school and a lot of people had a friend of mine who went to law school was like, said, I feel like I'm going to school with people who have no internal monologue. And um, there are people who are very politically active, too. And I was like, I had to kind of defend my position and be like, oh, that's interesting. And uh, legal language, it's like uh, like the ideal um, brief of which I've written like a million when I was a lawyer. Uh, y- you would almost want it to be written by a very persuasive computer. And I think there's something about... Persuasive the, computer. Well, it's, it's all about argumentation. And, um, y- you know, I, I think that that was interesting to me because when you're writing, you also think about what is the shape of the language? What, what, what is the suppleness or what does the, does your language have style? Does it have almost like a body to it, you know? And, but, but not in a brief. Yeah. So law, uh, you know, you, it's the most, it's very direct, you know, the other side is wrong for the following four reasons. Number one. And I think that's interesting because it, it helped me, um, 
I, I guess one thing is I used to say is it killed my dreams of being a writer in a really good way in that <laughs> I think that usually when you're a young artist or a young writer, you um, that's your identity, but uh, it makes you very vulnerable for stupid reasons because when you write something, when you have a song or whatever, you get really worked up about it. Someone doesn't like the song, therefore I'm an awful person. It's you. you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you go to a workshop and you get really worked up about it. Um, and in return, you, you feel like you have a cool identity. But I think being a lawyer kind of made me lose that because I, you know, like a, six months would go by and I did essentially not have written anything. And, you know, I was like, maybe I'm not a writer, but that's fine because I don't also have to feel uh, vulnerable for stupid reasons. Um, and I, I think that most issues that writers have, they're about uh, how to manage their issues of vulnerability through their writing. And uh, I think that people always end up talking about craft or you know, form, but these things are really shorthands for defense mechanisms for dealing with uh, issues that you ultimately have to confront at the end of the day. Like, why are you writing? Why, why, why are you not a socialized, well-behaving member of the society? Uh, why can't you be happy? Um, and, you know, craft is like a attempt to answer those things without uh, having any proper nouns, any kind of substantive response. And sometimes why are you not writing? Yeah, why are you not writing? And that, you know, when you're working all the time, you, you don't have that excuse, you know. So, um, yeah, I think, I think yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not that person anymore, and I'm not really a lawyer anymore, but it, I think it's useful. I still work a lot, you know, so I think it um, it's still useful to not feel like um, I should be writing all the time, even though I still feel that way, but you know what I mean. Well, and you're well as the d- director of the Asian American Writers Workshop. You're doing it's you're organizing so much. Yeah, like to keep this going is also a mission. Like you're entrusted with this nonprofit group. Yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, I, I do a lot of things that you might not expect, like uh, writing grant reports, recruiting board members. So, how um, do you find the time for the writing then, too, Ken? Um, I usually don't, but, um, I think for me the the biggest issue is, is not about time because like you can always be more, uh, efficient about your time. I think it's more about, um, how do you get inside a project? So it, it generates itself, you know, and, um, I think people often think it's like this thing where you have to like go into the corner and like be a hermit and have deep thoughts marinate in your like own ego for a while um and i think for me it it always felt like a project was like a scent you could smell that you would have to chase around a corner and like eventually it would lead you to something you had this glowing sensation of this uh the aesthetic of the project and um I would prefer to feel like that, but I don't have time to feel like that anymore. And so what's been helpful for me is once I can figure out the the voice, I'm working on a novel also, Like so I could once I figure out the voice of the novel, then I could get into it. For this poetry project, once I could figure out the kind of like conceit and like the things I was playing with it, it was like um, hearing like what key to play a song in, then I could just instantly launch into it. So I think... Uh, like when I when I was working on Juvenalia with Louise Glick, she would say things like, "From a young age, I I didn't know if I was a poet, but I realized once I got words on paper, I could edit anything into a poem." And 
I thought that was really wise in a number of ways. Um, for example, it suggested a kind of the desacralized view she had of poetry and that it wasn't necessarily about like God has to send me a lightning bolt into my like uh, cerebellum, which will magically transform to something that was necessary that I believe. Mm. It also talks about how much more effective we are when we're reacting to like a constrained problem as opposed to, uh, you know, staring at a blank page and... Um, working without any kind of confines or direction, you know, and I think, uh, so, so I, I think the things that have been helpful for me to write with while not having very much time is to like, um, just be very aggressive, like try to get things on the page, figure out where it goes, be willing to use your, uh, non-creative skills too, in terms of like marshalling things into shape, shoehorning things, you know, uh, being, at least being the, the virtues of a hack, being a good hack, I guess. Um, <laughs> Let's take a short break yeah. and we'll come back and talk more with Ken Chen today on the program. Um, his book on the table, Juvenalia. We'll be right back with Living Writers. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Ken Chen is here and Stephanie is engineering. Um, you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Ken, we've we've been talking about, um, at the break we left off, you're working on a novel, you're inside um, a new project, and you also are inside this project that you mentioned earlier in the show. Um, it, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I've actually never read from or talked about this project, so here goes nothing. Um, <laughs> I so I, I'm working on a book that's sort of about uh, death in a very jubilant way, um, jubilant and also the opposite of jubilant. Um, and it's it's a photos or photos or a lonely planet guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are, so there are a lot of sections that are called like Hades Baedeker. So it's like a travel guide to the underworld. And 
uh, I started writing. My father passed away, and I started writing poems about that. Um, but I also started writing some weird stuff that was sort of accreting around, and I had some dreams about him. But my mind would interfere with the dream, and then he would vanish, which would be the worst of both worlds. And gradually. Uh, I wish I'd printed that poem out, actually. But gradually, uh, that self-consciousness became integrated into the poems, into the dreams, into the dreams. And so I would dream that I was his... I I was visiting him, and he was in prison. Or that I was visiting him, and it was... He was... I was trying to immigrate to where he was. Um, So there's a way where the project is sort of about death as a form of immigration. And... um, it opened up this sort of uh, science fictional, fan fictional way where I could kind of just invent things. And I thought that it would... So there, there are poems that are more straightforwardly about my father's death. And then there are these poems that are like uh, like science fiction, fan fiction, uh, like Janelle Monet, uh, crazy things that are about uh, like art made up galactic empires and the apocalypse and nanotechnology destroying the world and uh, faux like Marco Polo travel diaries and um, I, I think I was trying to find a way to use invention in this sort of hysterical way so well, anyways it seems like it's so full of emotion when you started talking Ken I was feeling like, oh, oh no, oh no, you know, like, you know, it's so, yeah. so sad. And then it's interesting how you're like, and then it's like fan fiction with a, and then you think, how can this, how can this be? But maybe it's so you can survive the sadness of like this idea of death as like as prison or trying to immigrate to where your father has gone, which is so powerful and heart-wrenching and so um so how so so looking at it on the page too is it like there's these different fonts and italicized like how it's working it's almost like a a play or so or yeah uh, so so uh so i can read a part um so i invented these like different worlds and uh there are these sections called like Hades Baedeker and they, they have titles. It's sort of like a Fodor's travel guide to, to the, to hell. And, um, you know, they have titles like places of interest. Um, and there are all these bolded sections that are, it's like a glossary, you know, um, like a dictionary, um, you know, places you should, you should visit. So it's a little weird. I don't know if it's, if it's good. A lot of it is bad, I think, but, um, what are you going to do for the visuals? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, but I, I kind of, there, there's a part where, there's a subplot where Tristan and Isolde, the, like, <laughs> mythical lovers, are searching for each other, and Tristan becomes a sort of, like, alcoholic, uh, like, loser who goes to hell. And, uh, and there's a poem that I, I don't have with me where he just spends all time describing what he thought hell would look like. Um, like, like, golden cigarettes with, like, guilt, uh, you know, jewels on everything and, like, landfills filled with Mac classics and, like, TI-85 calculators. And and then he shows up and it's all, like, bad office buildings or something. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the... the it, this is really hard to read because it's long, but um, I'll tr- maybe I'll read it in a less poetic elocution. And um, 
skip around. So, uh, so it's Hades Baedeker. Bienvenido. Existence may initially seem like an exotic country, inscrutable to outsiders, but once you have spent some time existing, you will find yourself relishing its rich history, full of immense contradictions and warm and friendly natives. And here are the definitions. The most wrong, colon. That time continues, and the fact has not changed. The fact, colon. Death of your father. Sublimation, colon. Today, colon. Led editorial meeting, hired a web producer, had dinner, sex, realized tonight one year anniversary of the fact. Effect of foregoing, colon. Ruined calliope, the lungs. The most surprising, colon. What do you mean you're not happy? Hades, Baedeker, places of interest. Now you see it'll get more crazy. The epilogue, colon. Quote, in those days when Ragnarok and Quantum Crunch blackened the galactic core, killing kith and kin, whether the jewel-handed fraternal kings of Kok or enemy non-combatants cowering in lowland encampments, fragment missing. So, so there are these quotations of things I made up, and then it, and it, parts of the text are missing. And then there are three places. The, the Death Star. One, widespread organ failure. Two, the fly limb of the typewriter key swatting you into ink. Three, quote, When I stumbled upon the Death Star, coming west to customs, I heard rain strike the ceiling like Morse code. When I emerged the other side into Hades, the cobblestone street was dry and quiet and also efficient. Unquote. Tristan immigrating into death. Four, Fable. The utilitarian slew every good man and woman he had met, judging that their speedy expatriation to heaven would recompense his eventual hell, and that this moral surplus would expiate him from that hell. Note, not to be confused with the popular image from Star Trek. The history planet. See also the simultaneous city. One, we live on the history planet all at once. The stars glow, numinous lichen broadcasting light in every direction of time. Two, where Saladin defeats the Crusaders at Hatton, a third of the world's gold travels through Ethiopia, and a seven-foot-tall Muslim eunuch leads the Ming Dynasty tribute fleet around the Cape of Good Hope to Mecca. Three, the subject matter of the Hakawadi. Four, your current location. The Ghost World. One, where you go when your future's all used up. Two, Dilu, Tartarus, the city of the dead, a spirus fair, the floating sense of all extant ghosts. Three, the dark matter. Four, Dan Klaus's comic about an anhedonic teenager's attempt to redeem the camp detritus of American culture and a futile reproach to global capitalism. <laughs> Method by which to anger nerds. Colon. Identify provenance of Death Star as Star Trek. Um... Hades Baedeker, The Passage, The Mountains, colon. You wanted to immigrate through the Death Star to the ghost world so you could see your father. Where the history planet extruded into the necropolis, you decamped at the abandoned settlements, the coffee warm and still in cups. You heard noises and waited 
epithet, colon, quote, even in after death, I will not forget you, unquote. Spoken by a fictional man who, if he lived, would surely now be dead, one of 108 rebel protagonists of Shi Hu Zuan, the 14th century anti-statist Chinese novel whose ethical obligations, heroes triumphing against autocratic rule, could not trump its representational ones. History declined to collaborate with justice. Time, colon, one, the process by which you go further away from your ghosts. Two, the history planet. Spell for naturalization. This magic spell was found at the prison islands, buried under the statue of the unnamed god. O heart of the star warden, liberate me from this dolorous afterlife and repatriate me into history. Do not make my name fragment corrupted here. This spell is believed to be ineffective. Editor. These are sections that are written in doggerel. O seneschal of the TSA, panoptic pervert of the X-ray specs, what would one expect from empire but the return of the oppressed? Nationalism of forgetting, colon. Minos and the other judges uttered. The nature of paradise is that you may never return home. Is home tantamount to paradise? Then we shall be more specific. The paradisal elements of home are the ones to which you may never return. You return to the old city in the history planet. Coupon spell. If you are reading this on Amazon, look inside. Buy this book now using coupon code XDBE48. Thanks, Ken. That's that's really something. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but whatever. No, it's good. You could hear, could hear me kind of responding <laughs> over here, right? This was great. Thank you for reading. And that's a living writer's, that's like, it's a world premiere. But it's then, a world premiere. But then in our time machine, it is. In, in the time machine. Because you're going to also read this in Michigan, which will get a world premiere. Yes, yes, too. yes. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Ken. Yeah, thank you for having me. And please come come back anytime. Via, yeah. via phone, whatever, okay? <laughs> you're, you're a great living writer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, today on the program, um, we've we've been lucky to have Ken Chen here. His book on the table, Juvenalia. There'll be more more to come. Uh, a novel too. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Stephanie for engineering. Many thanks to Ken. And uh, until next time, I'm T Hetzel.
Pedro's lined up in front of Brown. They're going to give it to him on that left side once again to the 15. Big hole of the 20. 25-30. 35-40. Look out. 45-50. It's a foot race. Down the sideline. To the 30. To the 20. Nobody's going to catch him. 10-5. Touchdown, Michigan. What a run by Carlos Brown. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBM 88.3 FM and R. Hello, hello, and it is time for the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host today, Ryan Kassoff, joined inside the studio by Morris Fabry. It's going to be a good show today. On Wednesday, we have the Super Bowl coming up this Sunday. Big time game between the Denver Broncos and the Seattle Seahawks. It's going to be truly exciting, really for all of us here. And uh, if you're supporting any team, I know a lot of you out there are fans of the Detroit Lions. But, you know, the Lions aren't going to be in the Super Bowl. Sorry about that. Seahawks represent the NFC Broncos out of the AFC. Peyton Manning, who seems to be, he's essentially... A Hall of Famer. This guy's going to make the Hall of Fame. He's got one Super Bowl championship already. Going up against a second-year quarterback in Russell Wilson for the Seattle Seahawks. On that Seattle team, you got Marsha 